Well, good morning, friends. Okay. Let me just get situated here. That hour of sleep was nice. If you have small kids, it probably wasn't nice. They still woke up at the same time. Or slept a little later. So that was good. Um, okay. We have been preaching through Corinthians for about, well, since time immemorial, it seems like, but for about the past six months. And here we are in a, three, a short three-week series on our life together. We, we're a small, growing church plant, fairly young, and we're part of a, uh, a family of churches that are in Heights, Montrose, obviously here, and then Spring Branch, and we're hoping through Paul and Lindsay and then um, another church planting resident to be soon in Braisewood and then in East Downtown as well. So just a family of churches that want to every fall come together and preach on why we share life together. And the focus this year is really on we share life together and we're built out the way we are as really many churches but that share a common vision and, and values um, and desire to church plant and so on and so forth and that share life together because of the Trinity. One God, um, three persons. Um, and so that's what we're gonna be focusing on with three different texts uh, and then we're gonna jump into Advent and go into, into Luke uh, during, during Christmas time in December. So, so here we are um, and I'm just, it's, it's, it's gonna be fun to talk about the Trinity and why the Trinity matters with regard to our salvation, why it matters with regard to our life together um, and our mission as we are a family on mission. So Sam Albury in his book, Connected, Living in Light of the Trinity, which I've been into this week in preparation for this series, really good book, highly recommended. I'm about to, um, we're about to put out a long list of maybe 15 or 20 different um, sort of subject, under 15 or 20 different subject headings, sort of recommended books for any of you who are looking to read anything with regard to do, anything with regard to the Christian life. Um, but this is, this is in there under um, theology. Sam Albury, Connected, Living in Light of the Trinity. He talks at some point about the TV show Friends. Uh, I'm, everyone's familiar with it probably. Raise your hand if you've ever watched it. A single episode. Okay, so yeah, most of us. Um, it finished in 2004. And by that point, by its finale, it had been, it might still be, I don't know, the most successful sitcom in history. It ran for 10 years, 236 episodes, and by that time, by the end, each star, each of the six stars, though each of the friends, was making a million dollars per episode. Sounds nice. Um, what made it successful? What made it uber successful? Um, well, the friendships did. Um, they, it was really a show where you felt like you were kind of one of the group and sort of like Cheers, that's a little bit even before, way before Friends, but that was a similar idea that you could just kind of pull up a stool, come in, be known, as Sarah was saying, know and be known, be in a place where everybody knows your name. Friends was that way. At one point, they, uh, the, the crafters of the show d thought that maybe a working title was Friends Like Us. Uh, but they thought that that was a little bit too exclusive, the like us bit. They wanted anyone to be able to come in and watch the show and feel like they could be part of this crew. And so, friends, it was. Um, when we think about the gospel, and our focus this week is on the gospel in light of the Trinity. Next week is on the church, so we'll focus a bit more on the church, turn the prism of the Trinity and look at the church more next week in Matthew 28. And then the following week, we're gonna look at our mission together in light of the Trinity. But this, we're gonna focus most on the gospel Today And sometimes when we think about the gospel, I think often, 
we think about little more than forgiveness and cleansing. The avoidance of, um, of payment, payment's been made for us in the person of Christ, thank God, and then future heavenly reward. But what I want to emphasize this week in future weeks is that the gospel is the fact that we've been invited up into the life of the triune God. Because of sin, and I'm, of course I'll talk about this moving forward, because of sin, our relationships horizontally have been shattered. We're all focused on number one, and we push away other people in a sense, and what we do for others is often really self-centered. But that's all because this, this relationship with our maker, the lover of our souls, the one who made us for himself has been ruptured and shattered. Um, and so the gospel is about that being restored and us being brought back into that, that number one meaningful life-giving relationship, the life between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then that actually permeates our life together. And it shoots out into the places God has put us, to our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. So I want to start with just simply our enslavement. That's kind of where Paul starts here in verse 3 of Galatians 4 this morning with our enslavement under the law. The fact is, he's been building in Galatians to... For a couple chapters now, we've studied Galatians before, we, we aren't studying it now, we're just looking at this passage, but he's been building up to the fact that the law is good, the law that God gave the Jews, but it, it, uh, it showed them their sin, and we'll get into that. The law shows us our sin. You know, at some point Paul said, I didn't know that I was a coveter, I didn't know that I coveted, and that coveting was a problem. That's a real inward sin, being drunk or stealing those are very obvious sins. The drunk usually knows he's a drunk. He's fallen down in the gutter. But the man who covets or the prideful man often doesn't know. In fact, the prideful man is the last to know. You walk in a room and everyone knows instantly that you're prideful, but you're the last one to know it. So, but so many, our sins, external and internal, um, are shown to us by the law. Paul says, I didn't know I coveted until the law said, you shall not covet. It forbids it and then it shows me, whoa, I'm a coveter. But it also provokes sin in us. It is good. It is a reflection to us of who God is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love me. Um, work for the good of other people. Do justice. Love mercy. But it, it provokes the brokenness in us, and it shows the brokenness in us. Um, Sam Albury, again, he says it well. He says he kind of gets down into this sort of ennui that we feel, this longing, this sense of brokenness that we feel Sometimes in the quiet moments, we had some company over, I don't know if it was yesterday, we were talking about how we're so often going, 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 and so seldom silent, quiet, with no distractions, forget, even the, cell, the smartphone is somewhere else. How often does that happen, unless you're sleeping? But yet it's in those moments sometimes, and this is often why we, don't, we aren't quiet more, that that sense of despair and brokenness and that something is wrong, there's a bone that's severely out of joint, hits us, right? He says, all of us have become skewed versions of who we were made to be. We're left with a sense, profound in some, slight in others, of self-alienation. I've been separated from others. I'm separated from God, which is why I'm separated from others. I hide from others. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden once they fell. But I also, there's a sense in which I'm hiding even from myself. I don't even know me. But God does. And the law shows us the worst parts of us. It's unremitting. It's unbending. It's unyielding. And so he says, we look 
we have a sense of self-alienation, and Aubrey goes on, so we look in all sorts of wacky places for the answer. That's what idolatry is. We're looking for a sense of fulfillment in anything else created, anything but the creator, and that's what, that's what sin boils down to, um, except in the one place that actually has it, he says. So in verse three, Paul says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now this, so he's talking about the law, and this, this phrase is, is ambiguous. It can mean two different things, uh, and, and maybe Paul means both, but it can mean, the elementary principles can mean like the ABCs, like the law is sort of the stepping stone to what does the law point to? In the fullness of time, it gets us, it points us, it gets, it ready, gets us ready for the one who would fulfill the law in our place for Messiah, which is our next point. That's where I'm headed. So it can mean, the elementary principles can mean the ABCs, the sort of elementary things, um, that are for the immature, that are for children to lead us to, into adulthood to Christ. It can also mean, though, unseen forces, elemental spirits, and I think that's the way the ESV has it here. Um, but, <clears throat> and I think perhaps it could mean both. And so verse eight kind of points to elemental spirits, verses nine and 10, possibly to the ABCs. But the fact is there's a power behind our responses to the law. When the law, which is good, makes, shows us our badness, and then we feel, it doesn't show us our badness like a mirror shows you what you really look like. You might, I mean, I always think I'm better looking than I really am when I look in the mirror. I'm like, whoa, especially if it's the car mirror, which like shows you strange and crazy things. Um, I just like, ah, I was just trying to look at if there's anything behind me as I'm backing up. I did not want to see my face. Um, the mirror is unremitting. It shows us exactly what we are. But also um, our response to the law, there's a power there that the law provokes a darkness that makes us want to be lawbreakers, that wants to makes us realize that we are in curvatus se, that Latin phrase, curved in on ourselves. That's the state we're born into. Whereas we're made faces up to be talking with God, in relationship with God, loving God, outward focused like the Trinity is, Father loving Son, Son loving Father, together loving Spirit and Spirit loving them, serving one another. That's what we're made for, but we're, we're curved in on ourselves. So there's this power behind our response to the law, which aggravate, uses the law to aggravate our sin. Um, John Stott, he said, God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. That's what Paul talks about over and over in Galatians leading up to this. It is our, he uses two metaphors. It's our tutor, it's like a teacher. The law is our teacher that God wanted to lead us by the hand to Jesus. It was never for us to go, okay, I've got it, I've kept it all, I'm good. It was also like a prison guard or a prison that sealed us into a place where we couldn't go anywhere. We were locked up until the fullness of time came, until Christ came with the keys to unlock the prison gate. Um, he says that God intended it for these things, but Satan uses it, the law, to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. Do you lie? Have you lied? You're a liar. Have you stolen? ever. You're a thief. Do you drink to excess? You are a drunk. Not always, but you are a drunk. Do you covet? Let's go inward here. Are you vain? Are you proud? By the way, my answer to all these is yes. Um, you will know for certain that you are proud if you say that you are not proud. That's the one way to be sure of it. Have you kept even the first law the law on which Jesus said all the others depend, which is to love the Lord your God with everything that you are, mind, soul, body, spirit. Um, have you ever kept that for 
one minute of your life? Have you ever really loved your neighbor as you love yourself? Um, Or would it be closer to the truth to say for most of us that our lives have focused on ourselves um, and that we haven't focused much on God? And sometimes we just think, I'm just ignoring God. Maybe I don't even think he exists, but that's not that big of a deal. Well, actually, if we're made for him, if he made us for himself and holds us together by his very word of power, then what we're doing is we're being treacherous. We're traitors. And what we deserve, the law is clear, Paul is clear in Romans and elsewhere, is to die. That's what justice is. That's the law. It shows us our fault like a mirror and our sins and our inward evil. But here's the thing. It's powerless to change us. A mirror cannot change you from, it can't, you know, again, like I said last week, like close the pores, make them a little smaller, take away the gray hair, which I was horrified to see this week that I have more of it. You know, this, this, ever, this, this constant reminder that I'm dying. Um, memento mori, right? Yeah, the philosopher in me, every time I see a gray hair. Um, it's pow- the law is powerless to do anything about our sins. It cannot atone for our sins. Um, and what may be more, it's powerless to change us inside and out, the us who keep committing these sins, right? Um, and again, law isn't so much things we do. It is that. I mean, excuse me, sin, but it's the behavior that produces those things. It's the attitude of the heart. It's manifest in self-centeredness and pride. And this, I think, poor children, I always pick on them, but it's most easily seen in kids. Um, they're selfish and naturally disobedient. They're also extremely sweet and they look angelic. Notice my emphasis on look. Um, we have three kids and I love them all dearly, but they don't want to share. Any parent, I do not have to convince you of this at all. I'm not gonna even make a case for it. They're born not wanting to share. They're born knowing how to throw tantrums. They're born with you having to tell them 313 times to do something before they do it. Um, So why is this? It's because we are born lawbreakers. We are born, Paul says, dead in our sin. And the law shows us that. Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, don't you think your father who's not evil, who is perfectly good, knows better, and will. So Jesus just knew, he just called us evil, straight up. No sugarcoating. Um, and it says at one other point, they wanted to make him king, but it says, but he for his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. And then he says this, we think of ourselves as free lots of times, but Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Uh, he, he called it like it was, and the law shows us these things. Um, God made us, if you want to, we're going to be in, in uh, Genesis, we're going to do a slow march through the first few chapters, probably in January, uh, so we'll, we'll focus a lot more on this in the coming months, but if you want to look at how God made all things, go to, go to the first part of the Bible. God, God didn't create our brokenness. He created us perfect and to be in relationship with him, and he created all things well and good, but then he also made us to be together with him in the fellowship of the Trinity and with one another in love. But, but to be in relationship with him in perfect communion, we have to obey him. And our forefathers who represent us or represented us, if now we are in Christ, um, disobeyed him, broke his word in that severed relationship. And all creation that they had charge of fell. Um, and so we have how God made it and he made it good in the first two chapters and then what's the rest of the Old Testament about? Genesis 3, all the way through the law, all the way through the writings, all the way through the prophets, prophets through Malachi 4. It's about, it's the law, in a sense the law showing us, God's people, Israel, that they need a Messiah 
that they're sinful, that they can't do what they're called to do. Even though he continues to give them promise after promise in the form of covenants, really they're showing them that they need Messiah. They need Messiah to keep the covenant that they can't do. So all that law, as we, say, as we sang or said together in um, Isaiah 12, oh God, we wait for you. We are waiting for you. The, the Old Testament is really, after the first two chapters, just a, a, a picture of God's people turning from him and then the faithful just waiting for the day that he would make things right. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And then there's 400 years of silence after the last prophet speaks. And then, and then we have this beautiful and glorious but of verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So I wanna look just secondly at this fullness of time, this phrase, and just look at this verse. Um, beautiful, beautiful. So we've been imprisoned under, under the law in our sin, but then in the fullness of time, at the right moment, Jesus came. Um, at the right moment, Jesus was sent by his father. It seemed like God had forgotten. Centuries had gone by where the people were being shown their inadequacy and their brokenness over and over and over again. Why? Because beforehand, the time was not yet ripe. The fruit wasn't ready to eat. Um, the time wasn't full. My friend, um, Keep, he's in a sort of a relationship that isn't going the way he wants to, and it's up and down, and he really, he wants God to act, to intervene, and he feels like God's taking too long, and he feels kind of like when, if he's on, in his honest moments, God has for either forgotten or doesn't hear or doesn't care, or that God's timetable's off. But this reminds us in a much larger way of the fact that, I mean, again, sorry I'm bringing it in, but Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, a wizard is never, a wizard is never late, you know? This is, this is a great illustration of what Paul is saying here on a much more profound level. God is never, he's never late. He wasn't late in sending Messiah to the world, and he's not late in our lives. He's not late in our lives. Um, he does things in good time. The word here in the Greek is pleroma. It means completion as well as fullness. The completion of time. Time is up. Um, the idea is, is that Christ came at the right time, uh, not just at the right time, excuse me, but that things in the past had to happen. And God was waiting for that and he was orchestrating that and he was building that so that the fruit would be ripe, so that the time would be ready. It's like a... It's like a woman who is 40 weeks pregnant, pleroma, complete, full, I'm ready to give birth, okay? That is what, all the pieces are in place in the world for me to deliver Messiah, okay, to, to you, God the Father has said. So G.K. Chesterton in his book, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton is one of my favorite authors. He was a contemporary of, of C.S. Lewis, about 20 years older, uh, half, half a generation earlier, English. Um, he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man, and it's, it's hinge is Christ Jesus, but also he spends the first part of the book talking about how God got the world ready for the Messiah. And he talks a fair amount about Rome and the Punic Wars and Carthage and how in the Punic Wars, it was a set of wars, not just one, that lasted for over 20 years. In the Punic Wars, you had Scipio Africanus, what a great name. I think my grandfather named a dog after Scipio Africanus once. He definitely named a dog after Hannibal. You had Scipio Africanus who was leading Rome you had Hannibal, the great general who came up with elephants through the Alps from northern Africa, around Spain, up through the Italian Alps, down uh, into Rome, and it, over 20 years. And um, 
it was touch and go for a long time, but eventually uh, Hannibal and the Carthaginians, the North Africans, lost. And, uh, and the Romans won. And because the Romans won, that was sort of a turning point for the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic turned empire. Uh, and, and so the Roman Empire ended up taking over the Mediterranean Rim. But it would have been, here's the point, it would have been Carthage. It would have been Carthage. And what, what uh, Chesterton and not Chesterton alone, the point he makes is that was part that we can see of God getting the world, of the fullness of time. Right before Christ, this is about 250, 300 years before Jesus came. That was part of God getting the world ready. Because if Carthage had taken over, it would have been a very different world that Christ was born into. It would have been a world of black magic and child sacrifice. Um, my, my professor uh, of Old Testament, John Currid, has been over there digging in the North African dirt. He's, dig, he's dug up mass child graves that were, where ch- children were rolled into the open um, hot iron, cast iron mouth of the, of the god Moloch, um, which I'm very sad to say we do in our own way here in America. Um, Chetterton said this. He said, can any man in his sense compare the great wooden doll, which is apparently uh, associated with Rome, whom the children expected to eat a little bit of their dinner, so they kind of had a wooden doll there at dinner as tradition, with the great idol who would have been expected to eat the children. So that sort of people... Uh, the Romans were, were no, uh, they were no marshmallows. They crucified Christ. They invented uh, the cross. But it would have been far worse, Chetterton says, uh, with the Carthaginians. Also, you have Hellenism. Before Rome dominated that area of the world, you had the Greeks, who really gave their culture and their arts and their language to Rome. And then Rome dominated that part of the world as well. And so what you had is a common language, Greek, you had um, a common culture that bound all peoples from the uh, Atlantic Ocean all the way to Persia, really, bound together with a commonality. You had the, the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace under Augustus, who was the emperor when Christ was born, who had really given a peace and a rule of Roman law to the entire area. Uh, you had Roman roads by which the gospel was able to travel when Paul got on his way with his missionary journeys. Okay, um, and you had again this this language that everybody spoke, so the gospel could be preached in this massive area. This was God, and also you had uh, the law that had been getting the Jews, God's people, ready, binding them binding them up in captivity, getting them ready for something more. We can't do this on our own. We need Messiah to come, and so from all these different areas, you had God getting God sort of ripening the fruit, getting the time full and ready. There's a hunger rising. Even um, the Greeks and the Romans, the Latins, were sort of getting tired of not buying into the fiction of their uh, polytheistic religion as much. They, were, they weren't really buying um, the poets who taught and the mythologists who talked about the gods that they were there to worship. There was a hunger rising, a dissatisfaction, and the, and the Mosaic law had done its work on God's people. And so into this situation, God sends forth his son, born of a woman. Into the situation, um, Jesus steps. So the first thing is the Father sent the Son, okay? This isn't the plain verb for send. It's, uh, it means what the ESV says it does, which is to send forth or to dispatch on a mission. That's what the verb means here. So God the Father, what? He sent his Son forth into the world, born of a woman, under the law, on a mission. He dispatched him. to. Re- it's, it's, a, it's very much pregnant with a sense of rescue, um, like a Marines dispatched by a commanding officer, he was sent, Christ was sent on a dangerous but important mission. Um, 
the only son of the father, left heaven of his own will. But listen, he was sent forth by the father. He was sent forth by the father. Um, And he emptied himself and became poor and unrecognizable. And here, get this, crucifiable. Would we ever have crucified God in the flesh if we'd known that if he had retained all of, all, of the, uh, all of his eminence and all of his glory and all of his obvious power. We never would have. We wouldn't have been able to. We would have fallen at his feet. But he emptied himself of all those rights, remaining God, and was born poor as one of us through a woman so that he could accomplish the mission the Father had for him to die in our place. Um, often we only uh, think of the Son as saving us. And here's where I want to get into more of the Trinity and Trinitarian aspect of this sermon But no, this tells us in no uncertain terms, Paul says, look, it was the Father who sent him. The loving Father who said at the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry and multiple times throughout, this is my beloved son. I love him so much. I'm not punishing him by his life of suffering. I'm not punishing him because of the cross, through the cross. I'm punishing him in your place because this is what you deserve. He doesn't. He's perfect. He's the law keeper. He loves me from the heart. And so he is able to pay what we could not, still being with God. So the Father, we see the Father's love as he sent the Son to win our salvation. He turned his face away at the cross, pouring his wrath out on the Son whom he loved for you. That's the measure, not just of the Son's love, in, 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 becoming, in enduring the wrath of God and in becoming your sin as a substitute. It's the love of the Father to you as well in sending his son, in being pleased, Isaiah 53, to crush his son. Not because he's a sadist, but because he so loved you and knew that was the only way for you to be saved. He was glad to do it, and listen, the son was glad to go. Hmm? Hmm? Um, We often think of the father as just nodding, sort of begrudgingly acquiescing to the plan of salvation, but rather he superintended it. He engineered it. He had a council with the son before the foundation of time, and, and they agreed the son would go, the father would send, and the spirit would take the very work and person of Christ and put it into the people of God who believed on him and said, man, the law is a prison. Give me someone who keeps the law in my place. Give me someone who pays the price of a lawbreaker in my place, right? So the Trinity is at work in this, desiring through Christ to draw a people for God into the triune community, the happy fellowship of who God is, Um, and to really allow us, in a sense, to start over. Um, Only, so God was, his father Jesus' father is, was and is God, Paul tells us. Um, and his mother was and is a woman. Only God was able to save us. The maker of the stars, the one who numbered them, the one who spoke and made all things. Only God could do that. Only God could pay that price and then not stay dead. Hey, only man could represent men, though. This is the importance of the doctrine that Paul tells us here, that Jesus Christ is fully God, and he's fully man. One person, two natures, okay? Eric Metaxas, in his really good, it heats up by about page 100 biography on Martin Luther, he says, the infinite and omniscient and omnipotent creator God of heaven did not descend to earth on a golden cloud. He came to us through screaming pain, through the bloody agony of a maiden's birth canal, 
That's not the word he uses. In a cattle stall, filthy and stinking of dung. This is how humans enter enter the world, and if God would enter the world as a human being, he must enter it that way. It was the only way to reach us, here's the thing, guys, where we are and as we are. Christ took upon himself our broken and sinful humanity, being born sinless, being born sinless, keeping the law in our place, becoming sin on the cross, okay? Luther saw in this uh, the very essence, Metaxas goes on, of Christian theology. God reached down, not halfway to meet us in our vileness, but all the way down to the foul dregs of our broken humanity. And this holy and loving God dared to touch our lifeless and rotting essence. And in doing so, underscored that this is the truth about us. In fact, he says, we're not sick and in need of healing. We are dead and in need of resurrecting. Another church father said it in a much shorter, less graphic way. Uh, He said, what is not, he's speaking of Jesus in the incarnation, and he said, what is not assumed, in other words, what is not taken up into the person of Christ, what is not assumed is not healed. Jesus Christ went all the way down, was born as we are, yet without sin. God is his father, not Adam. Went all the way down into the depth of our depravity and brokenness and despair and self-alienation to make all things new. This is the beauty of the gospel in light of the Trinity that Paul gives us here. John Stott, um, he shores this up. He says, the divinity of Christ The humanity of Christ and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he'd not been man, he could have not redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. Christ kept the law for us. Paul tells us he was born not just of a woman, but under the law. A lot of times, again, I talked earlier about how when we think of salvation, a lot of times we just think about being the expiation, the the wiping away of our sins, the sin penalty being paid for by by Christ. But it's more than that, right? Um, It's also more than Christ um, uh, paying for our sins. It's him keeping the law that we are called to keep and be at friendship with. Um, One of my... Professors at New Testament, Professor Mike Kruger, he would often say, um, are we saved by works? He would start his, some of his Sunday school classes this way. Um, and it's a setup question because you're like, I, I know you're looking for yes, but it can't be. You know? And he would say, yes, we are. We're saved by the work of Christ Jesus. Every single, uh, we're not saved by work. We're saved by his work. He was our stand-in. He was our substitute. He was our representative not just at the cross, but every single act of obedience that Jesus did uh, from the heart, everything he did and didn't do in perfect obedience to the Father as your representative, your salvation hung on. Do you know that? Do you know that he would not have been able to die a perfect sin substitute if he had ever disobeyed God the Father? Everything, everything that we have in Christ, this eternal life in the Trinity and the new creation to come was riding on his every thought, his every word, his every action. And he kept it in our place. Um, but he also bore the penalty of a lawbreaker for us, Galatians 2, 19 through 28. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Wait a minute, I didn't die to the law. Wait, what's, he, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that Christ died on the cross. But why? He didn't break the law. Yeah, but he took your place. 
He died the death of a lawbreaker you deserve. And when he died, check this out. This is what Paul says in the next verse. You died. Okay? You died. That's what, exactly what Paul says in the next verse. Um, he says, I've been crucified, what? With Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Okay? Um, so he kept the law for us, and he bore the penalty of a lawbreaker for us as well. And when we believe on him, we receive that. And we're made sons and daughters by his spirit. Okay? Um, but that, and that's the second thing that Paul tells us here. God sent forth his son on the mission to save you. He also sent forth the spirit of his son to assure you of that salvation. Verse six. Um, we often think of the son alone as saving. We've already looked at how the father saved us by sending the son in love. But then all, and the son uh, accomplished our salvation. But verse six, God sent his spirit. Who's the spirit? First of all, he's God. He's the third person of the one God, of the Godhead. He's fully God, but he's not the Father and he's not the Son. And he's a he, he's a person. A lot of times we think of the Spirit as a force or an energy. I once heard a guy say, man, that dude's plugged in, talking about somebody that was full of the Spirit. And uh, I don't know if I should have uh, lovingly corrected him there or not. I didn't. I don't know that it occurred to me. Um, But don't talk about the Spirit that way. The Spirit isn't an energy field. He's a person. He's a person with deep feelings. You know when you sin and, you're, and if you have the spirit of Christ in you, you're deeply grieved, sometimes over, over even the slightest bit of gossip or lust or anger. That's the spirit of God. He comes down in the form of a dove onto Christ. Do you know that a dove, if you're a hunter, you probably know this, a dove is one of the most skittish of birds. The Holy Spirit, when he comes on people, they often have incredible power and courage and they go and do things that they would never do. If you look at the life of Gideon, in, uh, in Judges chapter six, you'll see this. When he comes on you, you are filled with courage and power and strength. But also, he is extremely sensitive and grieved deeply by sin. He is a person. And what Paul tells us here is that he's the person of Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, it's better for you. He's talking about it to his disciples. Hey, it's better. They were, he said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here soon. I'm out. I'm on mission. And once I accomplish that, I'm, see ya. And they were like, what? You're gonna leave us? And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Be comforted. It's going to be better for you when I leave. What? Yeah. Because I'm going to send you. They didn't get it then, but they did when he sent his spirit. I'm going to send you my own. Think about what a spirit of a person is. It's your breath. It's your very life. We have the very life of Christ by faith in him, his person and his work, in us. Jesus could only be shoulder to shoulder with his disciples before in one place. Now, He's with all of us, working through us, uniting us to each other and uniting us to the living God in heaven. Seated are you, Ephesians 2, in the heavenlies with Christ. Do you know where Paul was writing this from? And I'm jumping ahead, getting to the application here, which we're about to get to, but Paul was writing the book of Ephesians where he says something very similar from a Roman prison, probably a dank underground subterranean cell, cave, chained to a Roman guard writing about the convergence of heaven and earth and the new creation that is brought to us by Christ, by Christ sending us his spirit and bringing us up into the life of God. And through that, we bring, through our words and our deeds and our abiding in Christ, we bring heaven down as we love each other, as we love our neighbor, as we receive the love of the Father given to us through Jesus Christ. We are literally bringing heaven down to earth. And more and more does it become like this broken earth. Okay, Uh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. More and more does this broken earth, reverse that, um, 
does more and more does this broken earth become like God's abode in heaven as we abide in Jesus Christ and allow his spirit to take us to him and to bring heaven down, okay? Um, and, and for Paul, that, that real reality, if I can use that phrase, superseded, transcended, and broke into, not just for Paul, but really and truly broke into this present reality, these shadow lands. And it was greater than that prison, that very real but passing prison cell that he sat in and that prison guard he sat chained to. I just want to say to you, friend, wherever you are right now, whatever your situation is, chained to whatever you're chained to, chained to an unloving spouse, chained to a mortgage that you don't know how you're going to pay, or property taxes coming up that you don't know how to pay, testify! Um, whatever it is, uh, a job that you want, somebody that you want to love you, uh, on and on and on a real feeling of despair and brokenness. Can I just tell you that as real as that feels, what Paul is telling us here is that this fullness of time has broken into our present reality and those are passing shadows. The wind of the Spirit is blowing and is going to blow those things away. And what Christ has done and who he is and the fact that he's in you and in us binding us to one another and putting us in the places that he has decided to put us, which is where you are, seated where you are, living where you are, working where you are. He has determined those places, and he has a plan for you, and his plan for you is to deeply feel the love of God in Christ whom he has sent for you. This is how much he loves you. He hasn't, he's given his spirit to assure you of the redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus. He wants you to know that that is his depth of love for you. He loves you as much, as very much as he loves his own only begotten son, Jesus Christ. It's with that same love. Because you are clothed in Christ if you have indeed received him by faith. Okay? He says, Paul says, he's done that such that we can call, verse 6, God, Abba, Father, because we are in Christ. We who have looked to Christ and trusted in him. And Abba, some, some of us, the only thing that that brings to mind is a 70s Swedish glam rock band. Um, but it's actually an Aramaic, it's an Aramaic diminutive, as some of us might know, for father. For father. It's what kids would call their dads. And what Paul is saying is this is now the name that we have by right to call God through the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness applied to us by faith. It's, it, the best translation I can come up with for me is what do you call your dad? I call my dad dad. This is who God creator is now to you because of Jesus Christ. Um, this is the Trinity working for you, for us, to bring us to him and to bring us to one another and to bring us to um, a broken and a watching world. So um, let me just spend a, a minute or two applying these, these, these things, these glorious truths, and then we'll continue to worship together at table and in song. Um, What did Paul say in Ephesians 1? I kind of got ahead of myself and mentioned Ephesians earlier. I meant to mention it here. Um, point three here as we, as we apply this um, together in our life together. What did Paul say? He uses the same word for fullness in this series of verses. He says in Ephesians 1, he says, In him we have redemption in Christ through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Just let these truths wash over you, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth, get this, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for what? The fullness, same word, of time. To unite, here it is, all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In the first verse that we read about fullness in Galatians 4, Paul is saying, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth his son and then sent his spirit to assure us of the finished work of Christ for you, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth, that was 2,000 years ago, God sent forth his son. But here he's saying, in the fullness of time, uh, as a plan for this fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, he's not talking about the past, he's talking about now. He's talking about uniting heaven and earth and remaking all of creation, So what is he saying? He's saying that now, now, the time between Christ's first coming all the way until he returns, now is the fullness, the pleroma, the completion of time, and we get to be a part of that. Think about those, as I spent so much time at the beginning setting up the despair and the ennui and the angst and the brokenness and the imprisonment and the enslavement under the law. Think about the thousands of years that God's people sat, the centuries, I should say, under the law, waiting, waiting, waiting for God to act. And we are on the other side of that. God has acted and he continues to act and we get to be part of this full time. Just a few, rattle off a few stats and then I'll close. Um, We live in this fullness of time. I think it's the most exciting time in history. Um, More Christians than ever before, more people being moved from death to life by the work of God through the proclaimed gospel. Um, Nations, uh, turning to Christ, the biggest nation in the world right now by far, China. Got, I mean, over 100 million Christians possibly and, and more every single day. We have at least three good friends that are there working right now. It's open, the nation is opening up in some ways, in some ways cracking down, but those things are gonna be simultaneous as God works to the gospel. Um, at the same time, there are nations turning away. All of Europe in mass seems to be really turning away, yet God continues to work. In America, we're kind of holding our own, sort of a halfway house. Um, We pray that that would change. We wanna be part of that change. We wanna be part of that revival because the history of our nation in one sense is the history of revival. Um, So Lord, revive us again. Revive our hearts. Revive your church. Revive this nation. Um, There are huge obstacles in the midst of that, that fullness. There's massive persecution. Lots of people's love has grown cold. There's a resurgence of paganism in the West because there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality and we've pushed God aside and so in has come pagan worship. Muslims are, are turning to Christ in record numbers, more in the past 30 years than in the four, 14 centuries combined. Far, hey, far more. We get to be part of that. And the biggest concentration of Arabs in the city is right there. Minutes from here, minutes from here, just south of us. And then the, the, uh, the Gandhi district, just south of that. Um, and we have over 300,000 Muslims in the city and growing every day. So the nations are here. Um, For the first time ever, there's a a partner that we have called Seed Company, and they specialize, they're kind of like the special forces of Wycliffe, the Bible translator people, and they are saying that by 2025, they have this Project Zero, where they think that they can, in expediting translation processes, get to the place where there are over 1,800 people groups, people groups, not people, people groups who still don't have a single word of the scripture in their heart, heart language. They think that they can bring that to zero by 2025. And we get to be part of that. Can you imagine? We get to be part of that. Um, 
Jesus, uh, we're looking at the Great Commission next week, and he said, look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A few chapters before that, Matthew 24, he said this. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Back to friends. Back to friends. What a profound close. Um, if you got not much of that, get this. The gospel is more than having our sins removed. It is not less than that, thank God Almighty. But it is God restoring us through his son, recreating us, making us again what he meant for us to be and even, and even, and even greater than it was in the beginning, making us true sons and daughters through his son and bringing us up into a perfect knowing and a perfect being known, the life of the Trinity. And the more that we meditate on that truth, the truth of the gospel that the triune God has through the Father and Son and Spirit has done everything necessary for us to be saved, to be known and to know and to be free, the more that we will love God, the more that that will be shed abroad in this community and we will love each other and sacrifice one another um, and understand that we really are a family and the more that that will sort of suck other people in who get too close to our fellowship as we go out where God has planted us and put us in life um, with the love of Jesus Christ, with the love of the Father who sent him and with the love of the Holy Spirit um, who binds us to him and gives us all the benefits of Christ. So let me pray. Um, Lord, we thank you so much, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, for doing all the work necessary in the fullness of time to save us. We don't just look back to what Christ did. We look to him now. Lo, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even into the end of the age. We thank you for putting us now in this fullness of time um, to be loved by you, to love each other, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, Lord. Um, You've done everything necessary. We just, we just want to receive and want to abide and want to be conduits. We bless you. Um, we thank you for our life together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.